Whether creating our own playlists for cooking or smiling at food references in songs, we all know that food and music go together. Sean Williams, ethnomusicologist, explains it to us. It's on tip of the tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Sean Williams, professor of ethnomusicology at Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. Among other things, she is the author of two volumes of the Ethnomusicologist Cookbook, which is really exciting and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. I think that we should start by me admitting that I'm from New Orleans and I grew up here. And so the idea that music and food go together is something that I grew up with. And it was specifically defined that way, that you actually would go to a club or whatever, and the musicians would be making barbecue or something, and nobody thought anything of it. And in between all of that, there'd be, there'd be, there'd be music, of course, but you could eat and, and enjoy the music, and it was just a part of the fun. And I was sent to Moscow by the State Department. And I went with a chef and we went to the Moscow Jazz Festival and there was a jazz and blues tent. And at the jazz and blues stage, in between sets, the chef and I made jambalaya and I talked about jambalaya and then uh, alternating with making gumbo and then talking about gumbo, depending on how much time we had in between each set. And After the first day, actually the first morning, by the afternoon, people were waiting till the sets were over to come because they were so excited that there was food and people were talking about food. And the musicians were often from Mississippi, Louisiana, places like that. So they were hanging around too because the food in in Russia is quite different. And so they were thinking, all right, I'm on this tour of Europe or whatever, and I'm going to be gone all summer. I'm not going to taste gumbo anywhere except here. So I better get some, you know? So it was really, really kind of fun. And I thought of that immediately when I was reading your books and I just really wondered how you came to that connection between food and music. Well, I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that you did this in, it was in Moscow, you said? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm yes. thrilled to hear that you did this because what better way to introduce the culture of an area than through its food and its music, mm-hmm. especially together. And am I correct in understanding that there is a Zydeco breakfast, maybe in Lafayette or somewhere you know, where there's dancing and food and... Yes, yes. There's dancing, food and music for sure. It's all over Louisiana. (laughs) Oh, well, 
That's exactly what should happen. I think the entire world should consider doing that. It's a great <laughs> idea. I think also for the musicians who were touring, it is absolutely the taste of home. Right. And I think a lot about issues of nostalgia and what home is. And there's this famous quote of home is the place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. Right. <laughs> and, right. And, and somehow food and music are deeply involved in that. Um, so it's, it's actually a favorite subject. And I think about it a lot when I travel because I'm as adventurous as the next person. And I, I absolutely love trying out the local food as I listen to the local music. But there's something about uh, the sounds of home that yes. pull me back every time and the tastes of home. Yes. So. Yes. Well, I, I really loved the quotation from Harvey Steinman's The Recipe Handbook where he makes the, the analogy between food and music, how a recipe is more like sheet music than it is an architectural drawing. And I thought that is the perfect description because yes, food and music go together, but they're approached the same way also, which I think is something that we forget to talk about. We can associate them because they both touch on nostalgia. They both are part of our identity, but also its interpretation is so personal. No matter whether you're playing with an orchestra or you're playing on your, on your own, it's, it's really nobody's gumbo tastes like anybody else's gumbo, even when they follow the exact same recipe. And it's I think beauty. that's true of music. You can listen to someone play something and then you listen to another person play it and you know which one is which. I mean, if you know their work. Absolutely. And, you know, there's in, in music, there's there are the terms prescriptive notation and descriptive notation. And if you think of it as a very, very precise recipe with measurements and weights and that kind of thing, that would be prescriptive. Descriptive is more like a review, right? That this is what happened right. afterward. Right. And you can say, well, I really, I can taste the cardamom in this, but <clears throat> the ginger was completely lost. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right, right. Um, and is like, did they run out of ginger, or did they just leave it out, or you know, what was right. it this time? You know, oh no, it's really true. I mean, we always say this about local food. That by local, I mean New Orleans food. That everyone makes gumbo, everyone makes jambalaya, everybody makes red beans. We, we all eat the same food. But if I go to your house and you've made gumbo for me, it, I know it's gumbo, but right. I, it doesn't taste like mine. And you come to my house and you feel the same way. Oh, I know that's gumbo, but it tastes like her gumbo. It doesn't taste like mine. It's, not, right. it's not a judgment of good or bad. It's just a fact. Except and, sometimes it really is a judgment of good or bad, <laughs> right? Sometimes, yes. If you tasted my gumbo, you'd say, mm, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but if you grow up um, somewhere not New Orleans, let's say, but your parents are from New Orleans, they make gumbo, let's say for special occasions. And that's right. the only gumbo you've ever tasted. Right. And so then when you come to New Orleans and you taste this 
plethora of gumbos, you say, no, this isn't gumbo because <laughs> you didn't grow up having it interpreted over and over and over again to people across the street who had a child your age and you ate with them all the time because you were playing in their yard or whatever. They did the same at your house. You know, all of that way that you have of transmitting whatever this is and that actually keeps you close together and makes you feel part of a community. You miss that because you grew up somewhere else. That's right. And so you don't necessarily recognize an it as gumbo because you think there's only one gumbo, the one you grew up eating. And I have a, a perfect analogy for that. Um, and that is in Irish American culture, a lot of, excuse me, <clears throat> a lot of Irish Americans feel that Irish food must be corned beef and cabbage, mint chocolate chip ice cream and jello salad. Um, <laughs> And it's served on the, the all-important holiday of St. Patrick's Day, Patrick's March 17th. Day, of course. And there is a near identical connection to um, what real, quote, real, unquote, Irish music is. And that would be Danny Boy. Of course. When Irish eyes are smiling and other Irish-American hits Right. Uh -huh. um, so then when a number of Irish Americans or people who feel that they know Irish culture visit Ireland, nobody is having corned beef and cabbage. <laughs> and chocolate chip ice cream. Are you daft? <laughs> and jello salad. What even is that? <laughs> um, similarly, I, I teach a lot of Irish music and I sing Irish songs and they're often in Gaelic. And not only do people's eyes glaze over, you know, as soon as I start singing in a language that isn't English, yeah. but I immediately am requested to do a real Irish song. Like oh, Danny Boy. a real Irish song. Okay. Yeah. And Danny Boy was written by an Englishman, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's not actually a real Irish song. <laughs> Um, granted, maybe there are some people in the world who are Irish who enjoy it. And of course, I'm being terribly sarcastic, but there is that sense of what's real, what's authentic, and what is emphatically not. And that idea of whether it's gumbo or whether it's, you know, Cambodian food or Turkish food or Algerian food or whatever, there is a, absolutely a sense of ownership about what is of home, right? And it's actually a thin line between the, the sense of authenticity and the sense of inauthenticity, which is why I was joking earlier about how if you had my gumbo, you, you might not think of it as gumbo. And that's because I've never made gumbo in my life. Right. And you would be following a recipe if- I would be. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah. And I think with, with gumbo, jambalaya, and some of the other local foods, it's like jazz, right? Right. And I'm sure I wouldn't be the first person to make that analogy because, you know, you have, you have the composition and then you have the improvisation and the magic is in the improvisation. Right. What makes it your gumbo, right? Right. Yeah. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Yes. Huh. So it, it's also true that there, that food is used a lot in music especially, of course, blues and jazz, yes. um, as a substitute for sex. 
Yeah. Um, lots and lots of food references. Um, probably maybe less now that people are more able to make directly sexual references. Um, right you know, culturally able to do it. But I always found that really, really interesting, uh, that analogy. And and it was so universally um, understood, probably because everybody eats. And so there's a a real visceral understanding of, of the sensuality of food. But that to me is also a really, really interesting thing. And Absolutely. all of the, the rules that keep you from actually talking about what you're talking about. Uh, but, you know, it's also true with, with songs that were politically charged and yes. that kind of stuff. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one, one of the things that I, I think about in this regard is if you, if you take one step back from food, music, and sex into the idea of the economies of pleasure, right? Mm-hmm. That, that each of those is connected to pleasure somehow. And therefore, the people who are potential donors, whether it's a chef or a musician or even a sex worker, mm-hmm. right? That, that there is a simultaneous sort of respect and revile um, mm-hmm. sensibility accorded to each. And, you know, the idea of actually all three of them as, as being sort of low status, but high value. Right. In a right. community, mm-hmm. right? And not even, a, you know, a professional of any of the three of those, but someone who is willing to connect with the sort of pleasure realm of mm-hmm. sex, food, or music. They're, those are all profoundly associated with the human body and the senses and the need, right? And so even though, you know, music is not an international language, because if you don't speak it, you're not understanding it, right? Um, It's still a human need. And that's the same with food. I mean, of course, we need food to survive. But is it food if it's something you weren't raised with, right? Or if you're not from around here, why don't you let, why don't you try this very important local food that my grandmother makes? And of course you'll, you'll be sure to like it. And the poor hapless traveler or whatever is thinking, Oh no, (laughs) what do I do? (laughs) Oh, it's delicious. (laughs) Right. What can you say? Right. Well, I I think that, that, um, that food and, and music also basically are restricted by people who feel that you get too much pleasure from them. And so certainly, you know, in America, especially we've gone through many, many cycles of self deprivation because you have to chew every bite a hundred times and you have to eat this horrible stuff that tastes like cardboard because it's good for you, not because it tastes good. And so that good for you could overtake and, and impose on you. And of course, food scholars have seen countless times that immigrants who've come into America have been lectured to by these nutritionists and dietitians trying to keep them from using spices or eating too much garlic or whatever. 
because it was going to make you too sexually active or it was going to make you into a criminal or something like that. And that the most of the time the immigrants had the good sense to just say, oh, okay, and then totally ignore the advice. Very much, but (laughs) (laughs) right. But but also I think that you can see in certain kinds of our puritanical religions that Mm -hmm. even if they allow music at all. It's very, you know, limited and it's not really sung with passion as much as it's sung with just duty. I was just going to say duty. Exactly. (laughs) And so it takes all the fun out of it. And that's, of course, that's even beyond, that's the music part. And when you add the words to it, the words are usually so horrible that, um, you we're bad people and we're going to die. Right, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. And so, you know, when you combine the kind of really simplistic music that doesn't have too many notes in it and the no, horrible right. words, right, yeah. right, right. Then you, you know, is this music? You know, right. you're asked the question, is this food? I think you can ask that question too. Is Absolutely. Well, and I, as I tell my students, there are no bad genres of music, only bad songs, right? <laughs> or bad tunes. Uh-huh. Um, and because it's very common to say, oh, I hate X, I, you know, I hate hip hop or country or jazz or classical. And, and those are enormous categories. And, and so what I try to do is just elicit the specifics. And it turns out that very often the background of hating a particular style of music or hating a, a food is, is actually hating the people who do it, you know, and there are very often class issues involved, right. which is fascinating to me. But humans love ritual. And, and so when you think about sort of suffering through... Um, a meal that's good for you and suffering through maybe a sermon that's good for you with its accompanying good for you kind of music. Right. You know, the ritual actually supersedes the sensual experience of listening to the music or eating the food. And one of the things that I discovered fairly recently is that the English were all about the, the sort of the goodness of wheat, the Protestant importance of wheat. And because you have to labor to create wheat. But if you eat potatoes, there's very little labor involved, right? And, and so it is, in fact, you know, for those of you who love potatoes, I love potatoes. I also love wheat. But for people who love potatoes, that is direct evidence of sin. Oh, because my gosh. You can just throw the potato seeds in the ground and hey, you're, you have a garden full of potatoes. And I know this for a fact because my garden is just covered with potato plants for reasons unknown to me. And I do nothing to encourage them, but there they are. And so that actually survives today with phrases such as the couch potato, mm-hmm. right? Or calling someone a potato head, mm-hmm. right? And, and that idea of any, any foods associated with potatoes, that's, that's the food of sinners. Whereas foods associated with wheat, well, that's a good Protestant value because, you know, you have to labor endlessly to create wheat. 
And then once you harvest the wheat, you have to grind it. And that is labor intensive as well. Mm-hmm. And so naturally, you know, as the, the primary colonizing force in the United States, they would have applied that to all the new world potato growers, but also, you know, the Irish, the Germans, the Dutch, right? Other people who love potatoes and use them constantly in their meals, right? So there are, there are class issues afoot. Oh my gosh, that's really, really interesting about the potato and the Protestant, or, or at least um, whatever. Oh, that Protestant. Is. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> having, having grown up in a state that started out as a French colony, we did right. not have that bother. <laughs> oh, that's, and that's brilliant. <laughs> but you know, I, I think that for many people, that those same associations are clear with with music as well uh-huh. that there there is music of the of the classes different classes right uh-huh. and and so when i think about say a classical music concert right or a really elegant meal at a restaurant mm-hmm. you basically wear formal clothes right mm-hmm. and at concerts all the musicians are dressed in black and by that, I mean like a symphony, right? Right. Musicians are dressed in black. Half the audience is in black. And they sit silently as if they were at a funeral. And hey, the music that the orchestra is playing is the music of dead people. Right. right. Mm-hmm. And so if you can imagine um, an anthropologist coming from Papua New Guinea or something and, and saying, oh, this is a death ritual. Right. <laughs> right. and there there are no children running around people aren't throwing food or whatever you know it's not chaotic at all yes. it's highly ordered and you better enjoy that mozart otherwise <laughs> you're not the right class of That's person right yeah right um you better enjoy eating those snails right or you're not the right class of person who's had a good french education and speaks french right? Just yeah. for fun. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, you know, I, I spend a lot of time with people who listen to the music I play, which is from Indonesia or Brazil or whatever, and say, oh, well, that's, that's just not music. Sorry. That's they just actually not. say it's not music. That's right. And because uh, they haven't heard it before, right? And in fact, there was a, a local high school teacher who mentioned to one of his former students who had become my student, he said, you're studying world music? Well, that's okay for people who like to dance, I suppose, without recognizing the thousands of year old traditions in China and Japan and, you know, and the fact that the Epic of Gilgamesh was done by bards playing stringed instruments who were blind, right? I mean, when you when you look at that, you know, very often it's the, the culture bearers, the truth tellers who tell us our most important stories right. who are in some capacity musicians, right? Right. Because yeah. even, even reciting a poem is right. music. Yes. Um, so it has rhythm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. the tonalities and all the stops and the starts and the breathing and all of that sort of thing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so these all involve the human body Mm -hmm. at a very profound level. It really is the place 
where the body, mind, and spirit connect um, in unexpected ways. And I suppose that's frightening for some people. (laughs) (laughs) I, I mean, I recall doing a performance in San Diego where my grandparents lived 30 years ago, and it was Indonesian music. And I was the lead singer for the ensemble, and I was singing in um, Sundanese, which is a local language in Indonesia. And my grandparents were from Kansas and um, from a small town, and they were very, very offended by every aspect of it. And there was food afterwards, and they were offended by that too, because there was rice. And there must not be rice to call it food. Whereas in Indonesia, if you haven't eaten rice, you haven't eaten, right? I recall taking one of the great traditional singers who had given me a lesson, you know, by way of, of thanks, I took him to a Western style restaurant. He ordered steak, he had potatoes, he had vegetables, you know, he was just stuffed. And then we went, walked out and saw a friend of his and they said, oh, hey, have you eaten? And he said, no. Because he hadn't had rice. Correct. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so the defining feature of food then for some people is, is it rice or is it not? In the case of my grandparents, because there was rice, there was no food at the performance. And, you know, honestly, that's too bad. We really ought to all open up our ears and our taste buds just a little bit more. Right, right, right. Oh, my goodness. That is really, really amazing. They were, were they able to articulate other than the rice business? Were they able to articulate why the music itself offended them? Oh, uh, a little bit. They said, first of all, it's not in English. Um, and so, and I had, I had translated everything I sang, right. But that didn't matter because I was singing in a language they didn't understand. So, um, there must be something vaguely sinful about that. Um, and, um, there was also a sense that because I sang in a free rhythm, right. You couldn't tap your foot to it. And that was really worrisome, right. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And so it, it, they felt that there was nothing to hang their their ideas on, right? They couldn't, and they, they couldn't go just sing it on the way out. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And I have the feeling that if I had been there with my local samba drumming group, Brazilian samba drumming group, that also would have been sinful because it makes the body move and, you know, mm-hmm. and it's very... Um, exciting passionate music according to everybody who listens to it who happens to be yeah where i live which is the pacific northwest you right. know, we don't, um don't commonly have a lot of brazilian music here so mm-hmm. <laughs> so would they have felt that way if it were a european language even if it was sung in one of the european languages probably probably really so they yeah. didn't care what language it just wasn't english it wasn't English like Jesus Christ spoke. Oh, right. <laughs> also, I mean, so much of this, what is music, what is food, is tied to internal prejudices one way or the other, right? And I know I made the mistake of singing a Gaelic song to them, and they said, well, that's not Christian. 
and it was because it was Catholic. It was a type of song sung by oh. Catholic. Really, honestly, it had nothing to do with music. And it was simply fear of Catholicism. And I don't know if, if you would agree with this, but I think many people regard food and music with an element of fear if it's different, right? And of course, oh. I'm, yes, I'm using my grandparents as you know, as a, as a poor example of, of flexibility and curiosity, but that's only because I've witnessed it myself, right? And so very often when I'm trying to introduce people to a new kind of food mm -hmm. or a new kind of music, the first thing is, um, this is not food, this is not music, because it's different. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're, they're sort of playing the too cool for school game, right? Because if you actually stepped out of your comfort zone to try gumbo, for example, or to listen to, um, you know, a, a really great second line drumming group, right? Mm -hmm. That means you are no longer confident. And people really need to feel confident to feel safe. Yeah. Right? Right. And, and I recall my most recent visit to New Orleans, which was about five years ago, there were some tourists and a second line drumming group came down the street and there, it was a wedding party actually. Oh, and oh. the bride was dancing right at the front. And oh. so was the groom. Um, but the exciting thing was seeing the bride. Right. And, and so there were a number of, of tourists um, from Asia and it was a huge shock. Right. Oh, and obviously something to capture on a on a camera. Um, very often when people experience something that's different, they need to take a photograph of it to render it into a two dimensional form, uh -huh. which makes it safe. Right, right. right. And it, it's captured. Yes. Yeah. And then you can approach it sort of on your own terms. Uh -huh. I recall taking taking my parents to Indonesia and, and I said, if you see anything you know, like one of those giant bird catching spiders, you know, that are dinner plate size, take a picture of it. And then you can, you can manage it. Right. right? right. But if, if it's you looking at the spider in your shower or whatever. <laughs> it's terrifying. <laughs> exactly. Your only option is to scream bloody bird. Right, right. And you don't want to panic and fall in the shower either. <laughs> That's right. Oh my goodness. Well, Sean, our time is up. So thank you so much for having this conversation today. It has been just delightful. Thank you. It just makes my day to talk about things like this, right? And uh, every time I try a new food or listen to a new music, it, you know, it, it's me stepping outside of my comfort zone as well. And so I recommend that for everybody. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.